0: Oh, and I'm a member of the Shadley Alanon group in Louisville, Kentucky. Hi everybody. Hi. That's noise. It's coming back to me. Is that too close? Okay. Too far away. Okay. We we tried this out earlier and I just didn't know it was going to feed back on me. I'll be okay in a minute. It just takes me a little while to calm down. I'm sorry. This is the only lie they ever told me in this program, and they said talking would get easier. (laughs) But it doesn't. I do have to qualify. I'm a sometimes grateful member of the Shively group, and that Shively group just happens to be the greatest group in the world. And I qualify that statement by telling you that those people in my home group know the worst of me, and they love me anyway. And that's what makes them so special to me. Uh, to keep you from counting on your fingers and getting confused, I am the mother of nine children. Uh, there's no twins.
1: <laughs>
0: I did it the hard way, one at a time. <laughs> I do everything the hard way. And all nine of our children grew up in Alateen. Uh, the little ones wished their life away till they were old enough to go to Alatont. And uh, we had three programs at home. We had the Allatots, the teens, and the Post-Teens. And uh, so our family just fit right in. They grew right up through the program. Uh, my husband says he's an alcoholic, and I agree with him. <laughs> that was the nicest word I called him. You see, I knew what an alcoholic was. I had an uncle who drank alcoholically. He was the greatest guy that ever lived sober. But when he drank, I hated him. And I was always embarrassed by his behavior when he drank. You see, we lived in a in town on a street that had a beer joint on the corner. And when he came out of that beer joint on Friday night carrying his little bucket of beer, and this really dates me. You know how old I am now. Uh, they didn't have six packs back then. And uh, he'd carry that little bucket of beer down the street. He hadn't even drank it yet, and I hated him. And I wouldn't have anything to do with him. I just And because I knew that eventually he was going to stagger back down the street with another bucket of beer and he'd be sloshing it, and the kids were going to laugh at him, and I would be hurt and embarrassed, and I hated him. And on Monday he'd go to work, and when he'd come home from work Monday, he would be loaded down with toys and dolls and games. And he would try to make up to me because I'd be so angry with him. And I liked this making up. And, you know, this was a pattern I carried into my marriage. I was angry with Bob, and I let him make up to me. And you know we did a lot of making up. (laughs) But... When I say my uncle was an alcoholic, I believe that. I, I think if they walk like a duck and they quack like a duck, it's safe to call them a duck. And my uncle committed suicide in an alcoholic blackout. And he lived, he jumped out of the top floor of the Brown Hotel in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, committing a tension side. He really didn't mean to fall, but he was so drunk he lost his balance. And... Uh, He lived for nine days in the hospital, and in those nine days he had no memory of trying to do that. So that's why I say that if he had the blackouts and his life was as messed up as it was with alcohol, he was an alcoholic. So I was never going to marry a man who drank, and I wasn't even going to date one. And when I got into high school, uh, I met my husband when I was in the second grade, uh, but I didn't like him then either. And uh, he was a smart-aleck kid. And so when we met again in high school, I moved away from that grade school, and uh, when we met again in high school, uh, I still didn't like him because he drank. And uh, I wasn't ever going to marry, so I wasn't going to date one that drank. But, you know, in our high school... uh uh, we played sports, I played sports, and my husband played sports. And after the, all the games, the guys would get out a cooler of beer and they'd all drink a beer. Well, you know, if you want to date, you're going to have to change your attitude. So I changed my attitude and I started dating him. And Bob says in his talk that we broke up more in high school and we did after we were married. Because, you know, he'd get drunk and then I'd say, no, I'm not going out with you. And uh, this is how we did it. But, you see, I was trying to change him from the first day. I wanted him to stay sober for me, and he wouldn't do it. Uh, after high school, we still dated off and on, and he went off to play professional baseball, and uh, when he came back, he announced that we were going to get married, and I just laughed because we hadn't even been dating. And uh, the night that he offered me the engagement ring is when he said, uh, you know, will you marry me? And I said, no, I will never marry a man who drinks like you do. And he looked me straight in the eye. And he was so hurt, and he said, do you think after we're married and I have responsibilities I'll drink like this? (laughs) I ended up apologizing to him for thinking that. And that set another pattern in our lives, because he still has the ability to make me feel that I'm wrong when I'm right. So we did get engaged. We did get married. I made him promise. I made him swear he wouldn't drink the day we got married. And he kept that promise. He didn't drink. He was so hung over from the night before, he couldn't drink. (laughs) But that was okay. I had that little bit of control, and that control was really important to me. Uh, We had a lot of fun. We we were in a big crowd of uh, young couples, and we went everywhere and did everything, and we partied all the time. Uh, We had a really good time. Uh, I used to look back and think there weren't any good times, but, you know, as you grow in the program, you get a little more honest, and you are able to see that there was a lot of fun. Uh, Now, when he got drunk, it wasn't fun, because I wasn't a nice person. And this is why talking to you is uncomfortable for me, because now I have to tell you the kind of person I became, and that's very painful for me. But you see, I must remember. I must remember what I was like, lest I go back to it again, lest I forget to be grateful for what I am today and what this program has done for me, because I can revert back to the old me just like that and it thank goodness i don't stay there i have the awareness that this program's given me to change and i have i have choices today uh we had the uh, first little girl uh, with a long time coming, we were married and I kept, all my girlfriends that had gotten married at the same time and we were in each other's weddings, they already had babies and here I was and I wasn't pregnant and I wanted a big family. You see, I prayed, I told God, I was an only child and I wanted a big family and I told God I wanted six, I told Bob I wanted six and I made him agree to six before I'd marry him and uh, I know now God looked down and saw that number upside down and sent me nine <laughs> But uh, I was so anxious because I wasn't pregnant. And uh, so finally I got pregnant with Cindy, and she was born, and oh, I was delighted. I had a play toy, and I played with this baby. You know, I dressed her. Every outfit had to match. You know, if her little top got wet, then she had to be changed right down to her socks to match because it was important to me that she looked good and reflect back on me. And uh, this is the kind of mother I was. Now. I wanted more, and there was two and a half years there when I didn't have another baby. My girlfriend's had three by this time, and I felt so out of it. And uh, without consulting Bob, I had worked for an attorney, and uh, so I just went down and filed for adoption. I didn't tell Bob about it. I figured he knew we we talked about six, so we were going to get them any way we could. And uh, It wasn't until we had gotten to the place where he had to go in for his interview that I had to tell him, and when I did, I didn't understand this man's rage. I did not understand it. Because, you see, we had talked about six children, and we only had one, and I I didn't understand why he didn't want me controlling him like that. Uh, I did get pregnant, and this time I had found the answer because I got pregnant every, I had a baby every 13 months from there on. (laughs) Uh, but um you see the drinking was beginning to bother me the drinking episodes were getting closer together the bad times were getting closer together and I was getting sicker and sicker in trying to control these bad times. You know, I watched what he drank, I watched where he went and who he went with, and I tried to control that. You know, if he wasn't with that bunch of guys, he wouldn't drink so much. If he wasn't at that bar, he wouldn't drink so much. And I'd introduce him to a new bunch of guys in a new bar and he got drunker than never. But, uh, you know, control was what I was working on so hard. Uh, he had an older brother who was, an alco- who was on Skid Row. He had drank himself out of a family, out of a home, out of everything. Self-respect, the love of, his, of everyone. And he was on Skid Row. And he got, walked into AA's office in Louisville and got sober. Uh, and the AA's came out to his mother's house and sat with him. They didn't have treatment centers back in those days. Uh, and they sat with him through the night. And you could sit in his mother's kitchen and hear the bed walk across the floor as he vibrated and suffered through that. And Norman got sober and went to meetings. And I thought this was wonderful. And Norm came back to the house one day to borrow one of Bob's shirts and tie and jacket because he was going to go look for a job. Well, Norman didn't work. Norman drank, you know. And I thought, this this is incredible. And I asked him, tell me about it. And he did. He sat down and told me about it. And, you know, he, he jokingly said, he said, you know, honey, you were right. He says, when you used to tell me, it was that first fear that got me drunk. And I said, I was right? I hadn't been right in all these years with this man I was living with, and here this brother-in-law was telling me I was right. And I said, "Norman, you've got to get Bob to go to AA." And he said, "Honey, I can't take him to AA. He he has to want to go for himself." And I said, "Well, he'll never want to go." And he says, "Well, that may be, but I can't make him go." And I said, "Well, just take him." And he said. I will when he asks me to, but not one day before. And I thought, well, that old boy's going to ask him too if I have to break his leg. <laughs> and so I kept working on this, and he and his brother, Bob and Norman, were going fishing down in Cumberland, and they were going to be down there about a week. And I got to thinking about this, and I, so one night when he was talkable, you know, I could talk to him, I said, you know, you're going to go fishing with this brother of yours, and you're going to do something, and I'll bet you get him drunk. And he said, I'm not going to do anything to get Norman drunk. And I said, yes, you will. You're going to drink in front of him, and that'll and, and you'll upset him, and he'll get drunk. And he said, I'm not going to do anything to get my brother drunk. And I said, well, if that's true, why don't you go to one of those meetings with him and learn what to do to help him stay sober? <laughs> and he says, well, if it'll help Norman, I'll go. And he did. And I thought, this is it. You see, I knew why Norman was an alcoholic, they had three girls, and they didn't have a son. And we had four girls, and we didn't have a son. And I knew that's why, uh, that you know, uh, Norm was the alcoholic, and uh, that's why we have two boys in between all our girls. We have seven girls and two boys. But I had those two boys to get Bob sober. Uh, (laughs) They didn't work either. But... uh, Norman Bob actually called Norman and asked him to take him to a meeting, and he did. And when they left that night, I can remember just being overwhelmed with joy. This was it. This was it. Norman had gone to one meeting, and he hadn't had a drink since, and Bob was just as smart as his brother, and he would do the same thing. He came home, and he stood there, and he shook his finger in my face, and he said, I can't help him. He's been sober almost a year. You'll never take another night out of my life. And he went out and got drunk that night. And I thought, my God, he is so far gone, I'm going to have to go and get this for him. And so I called Norman and said, we want to go Friday night. And Norman says, okay. And he came by and picked us up. And uh, I told Bob that Norman was coming Friday. You know how we do. We shoot all these little corners. You alcoholics don't have a corner on that. We're we're good at conning you. And uh, so we went to that meeting. And we walked in the, up those steps to that room, and this gorgeous lady, I mean really attractive redhead, comes charging across the room, and she grabs my brother-in-law, and she hugs him, and she kisses him, and I thought, don't you reach for mine, sister.
1: <laughs> now,
0: I didn't want him, but I wasn't going to give him to her. <laughs> And you know she didn't. She stuck her hand out, and she said, You must be Norm's brother, Bob. And I thought, Oh, my God, he's been talking about us to him. And then she turned to me, and she says, Honey, you going to stay down here with us drunks or go upstairs and learn how to live with your drunken husband? And I almost died. Now, I didn't care whether she called herself a drunk, but she was calling my husband a drunk right out in front of all these other people I didn't know. Now this is the the paradox of this. You see, I found out early in our marriage that my husband didn't like to hear me curse. In fact, I called him an SOB, and I wasn't using the initials one night. And uh, he reacted, and he said, don't you ever call me that again. That's not cursing me. That's cursing my mother. Well, God knows I wanted to curse her. She would raised two of them, <laughs> and I learned to use these colorful words. but. I wanted in that room that night. I wanted in there because, see, he had gone and hadn't gotten it, and I had to go and get it for him. And I did the only thing a good non-alcoholic can do. I pulled my other face on, and I smiled sweetly, and I said, I'm going to stay here with Bob. He needs me. (laughs) Now, he hadn't needed me for over two years, and I can qualify this because there's two years and nine months between Missy and Mary Rose. (laughs) We didn't even shake hands in passing in that time, I tell you. But I got in there, and I sat right on that front row. And they say that's the row for the incurables, and I've been there ever since. Uh I sat there and I heard this a man talk and it seems to me, now I've heard him since, he gives a good talk, a good message, but it seems to me that the only thing he talked about was his wonderful wife and how she had stood by him and kept the home together, kept the family together and done all these wonderful things that I knew I was doing and, uh, you know, just made life wonderful. And she had seen him into this program, and now she was trudging the road to happy destiny with him, and oh my God, I just thought this is wonderful. Anything that can get Bob up in front of a room full of people to tell them how wonderful I am is what i got to get for him. (laughs) And I went back to AA with a vengeance. I went to AA meeting after AA meeting all by myself. I'd get babysitters, and off I'd go. And they let me. They let me go to the AA meetings. I sat right on that front row, and I loved hearing those stories. I loved just, I could sit there and identify, because you see, I was an expert at taking an alcoholic inventory. I'd been taking Bob's for years. So I was perfectly at home in AA. I liked it. And they were very kind to me. They loved me. They let me sit there. And they let me ask questions. And, uh, the, Best part of it was they didn't let me control them because I'd tell them, "Why don't you call my husband and get him to come? Or why don't you stop by where he drinks and get him out of the bar?" And they wouldn't let me control them. They made me—they—they loved me enough to let me do my own thing. Now, I went to, that's why I have a problem with my birthday in Al-Anon. You see, I went to AA for so long, and I really don't know when these two mean old ladies tricked me into that first Al-Anon meeting. Uh, You see, I'd been going to this one group faithfully every Friday night, and they were trying to get an Al-Anon group started there. And so they had these two mean old ladies come out and conduct the meeting for them. And uh, one got on one side of me and one on the other, And when I say they were old, they were. They were decrepit then, and that was 25 years ago. And both of them are still living and still meaner than snakes. (laughs) And I say this with much love, because one of them is my sponsor. Uh, But they got on either side of me, and this one said, uh, Honey, you don't belong in AA. And I said, I know that. I'm only here to get him sober. And they said, well, it doesn't work that way. And you you belong in al And I said, I'm not joining any auxiliaries. I had been PTA president, ultra society president, and room mother all at the same time. I didn't need any more organizations to work in. And uh, they said, honey, if you come with us, we'll help you. Well, I thought they meant getting sober, so I went like a lamb to slaughter My goodness, they got me in that little old room around that card table, and they wanted to talk about my character defects. (laughs) And I want you to know here and now, and I say this in all honesty, I didn't have any. (laughs) Sure, I cursed like a sailor, but I only did that to make him mad. Yes, I lied. I lied to bill collectors because if I didn't, my, only God knows what would have happened. I lied to his boss or he'd have lost his job. I lied to my mother or she'd have killed him, and you'll find out later on she almost did. Uh, I lied to his mother because I thought she ought to know just how bad things were. Uh, I lied, worst of all, I lied to myself. You know, er, I, I couldn't tell the truth about anything. Uh, and sure, I hated everybody in the world. You know, looking back. On those days, the only emotion I can remember is anger, hot, white anger at everybody and everything. People, places, and things were against me. Even God was against me, and good as I was, (laughs) I could go to confession on Saturday night and I made what they call a general confession because I had no sins to confess. This is the way I was, and this is how I sat at that table. So self-righteous and so full of self-pity. Now, up to this point, I had never told a living soul what went on in my house. I had never communicated in any way that things were not perfect in my life. And there was no way I could tell these women sitting around this table what I was like. Because, you see, I wanted what they had. I saw it in their eyes and I wanted it. And I was afraid if I told them the kind of person I was, they wouldn't let me come. I was afraid to tell them. I couldn't open up and tell them, look, I've got a mouth that needs washing in washing machine. There's no way that I can communicate without all these dirty words. I had to learn to speak English when I came down on, because I couldn't use just plain English. I had to color up with these little colorful adjectives and so i couldn't talk at all i had to be real quiet and i'd listen to them talk about what you know their lives and they were ladies you know most of them had just worked and done what they had to do and when he got sober they came to al anon and they were enjoying all these wonderful fringe benefits and i couldn't identify with them I I just couldn't talk to him, but I went back because they kept saying, if you come back, we'll help you. And I did, you know, I did all the right things for the wrong reasons. But the one thing I did do was I keyed in to what they did right before he got sober. And whatever it was, I went home and did it. I would create the situation and work it on Bob. And he never knew his part. He never cooperated. So one night at this uh, group, uh, it was the same Friday night group, we had a couple in from Owensboro, and uh, this lady got up and said that she had hit her head, husband in the head with a cast iron skillet, and when he came to in the hospital, he called AA. And <coughs> you're there ahead of me again, aren't you?
1: <laughs>
0: so next morning was Saturday morning. I was in Winn-Dixie headed for one department, and that's where they had those cast iron skillets. <laughs> I got two of them. I have never known to this day why I bought two, one round and one square. I hope somebody can sell me someday. And I'm racing back to the checkout counter now. By this time, I've got six kids and I'm pregnant with a seventh one. And I'm racing back to the uh, counter with two skillets in my cart. You know, I should have had a hundred dollars worth of groceries, but I've got this one thing on my mind. And somebody kept pulling at me. And I don't know about anybody else, but I operated on two levels. The front part of me could say, "Hi, how are you?" While the back of my brain was, "Where is he? What is he doing? How much is he spending? And how am I going to keep him from doing it?" You know, all of the. Week we were going back here, and this hand was pulling at me, and I tried to shrug it off, and finally she really got a grip on me, and it was this same AA lady. And she says, Juanita, what in the world? I've been trying to get your attention. And then she looked down in the cart and she said, oh, no. <laughs> and I said, oh, yes. And she says, young lady, you're going home with me. And that AA lady took me home and put a coffee pot on, and she sat there and she talked to me. And she told me about her alcoholism. And you see, she told me she didn't want to be that way. She told me that she would have given anything to have been a good mother to her two children, that she wanted to be a good wife. But once she took a drink, she was not responsible for what happened afterwards. And, you know, I could believe her. Now, I couldn't believe you, a Men, because I knew you were in cahoots with it. And I called it it for a long time. You see, we even had two cars. My children and I went to church in my car, and it went in its car. (laughs) And I didn't let my children ride with it, because I was not going to let him hurt them. And this is the way I was. Uh, I not only was very vocal, I was very loud, I used to, you know, in the hot summertime, and this is back before central air conditioning, I used to close all the windows when he came home so I could get even louder and the neighbors wouldn't know, I thought. Uh, I really thought I kept all this hidden. And, you know, it's impossible to keep a six-foot drunk hidden. I mean, there is no way you can do it, because he kept passing out on the front lawn, but, uh. I'm, I'm going to these meetings now, and I'm, I'm trying. But when this lady shared with me her story, she gave me something. Well, I guess she gave me one of the first gifts that had been given to me because she gave me a little bit of herself. And, you know, when I went home, I actually looked at my husband, and I could see his pain for the first time. I could see his pain. And you see, I thought I was the only one who hurt. I thought I was the only one who had this pain. It was a real physical pain right here. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't, I was just a bundle of nervous energy. And I know today why God gave me this big house and all these kids, because if I hadn't worked this energy off on that house and those kids, I would have killed him. Because I really tried. You see, I had this pent-up fury at him, and I wanted I wanted to hurt him so he would feel pain. And if he could feel that pain, then he'd know how I was hurting, and he'd quit hurting me. And that's the insanity that alcoholism brought into my life. Because, you see, when I came to Al-Anon, the first thing they told me was I could not control this man. I did not have the right to try. And I was just fighting a frustrating battle if I did try. They told me that I had to love him, and I didn't swallow that one. Uh, I didn't think I could love him because, you see, this was the first person I had let into my life and let get close enough to me, and he had hurt me. How was I ever going to let anybody else get in there? I kept a wall between me. When i go to these meetings and the AAs would go to put their arm around you, they're so loving and affectionate. I I learned to do the fastest two-step you've ever seen because I could whip around under that arm and take their hand and shake it and then, you know, cringe away from them because I didn't want that personal touch. I didn't want you near me because if you got near me, you might hurt me, and I wasn't going to let that happen. But they kept telling me, show him love so that he can feel it. And then he'll return that love to you. And I wouldn't believe him. I would not believe him. I tried a lot of things that they told me to do. But that was the one I couldn't try. Because if I if I opened up and loved him, he would be able to hurt me again. And you see, I built myself up into this stone wall. And I didn't feel anymore. I didn't feel anything. I'd, the anger, I, I know I felt. But that was the only emotion that I could work up. I didn't feel love. I didn't feel anything. And when I don't tell you about my children during this time, it's not an, it's not a mistake. It's the truth. I don't, I wasn't aware of them. I was a good housekeeper. I was a good dietitian and I was a good disciplinarian, but I was not a mother to these children. Now, if you'd have asked me, I'd have told you I was both mother and father to them, but I was neither. I was nothing because I couldn't love these children. You see, they were what kept me from being out there and partying and and going to all these nightclubs with Bob. And I resented them. They were a responsibility I didn't enjoy. And so they were just there in my way. Uh, I kept going to Al-Anon meetings, and finally I heard the lady talk who had been as bad as I was. She had used bad language. She had hit her husband. Can you imagine that? She had actually hit him. And they had had fights. And I just, I I just, it was just like somebody had opened a door. All at once I knew that I really was where I belonged. I knew that these people understood me, and especially this lady. And I could talk to her. Now, I wish I could have told you that this made a big change in my life. But I went home from that meeting and tried to kill my husband. Uh You see, we used to play games. Uh With all these little kids, money was a premium, and so we played hide-and-go-seek with his billfold. He would come in and hide it, and I'd go seek it. And if I couldn't find it, I'd wake the kids up and say, come on, start looking under things and let's find the billfold. This would be 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was making these children as sick as I was. Um, I taught these children to hate him, and I didn't even know it. Uh, we played king on the hill with the car keys. You see, if I got those car keys to his car, he didn't go nowhere that night. Now, it was a miserable night. Oh, boy, did we have fun. But I kept him home, and so we played, like I said, king on the hill with the car keys. And this particular night, I got those keys, and I said, you're not going back out. And he said, "Uh, yes, I am. And we were tugging and pushing over the car keys, and this man pushed me down. And I hit the floor, now I was always pregnant, so you know I was pregnant then. And I hit the floor, and I can't tell you the feeling, I wish I could describe it, but there aren't any words, of how good it felt. You know, he had hit me, and I was down on the floor, and this wonderful feeling washed over me. And I looked up at him, and I said, well, you have finally sunk as low as a man can sink. You've struck a lady. And he looked around the living room, and he said, I don't see any ladies. (laughs) I'm telling you the rage that built up in me. I wanted that man dead. I wanted him dead on that spot. And I come up off that floor, and the only thing within reach was the fireplace equipment set, and I grabbed that poker, and I swung it at his head. I meant to kill him. Everything in me meant to kill. He threw his arm up, and I broke his arm. And it started swelling, and he said, take me to the hospital. And I can remember standing there and looking him straight in the eye and saying, die, damn you. I don't care. And he drove himself to the hospital. When he came home, he had, they couldn't put it in a cast. They had to put it in a big, uh, wrap it up in a brace and put it in a sling. And he came home and he'd sit and he'd hold it like this and he'd say, look what you did to me. (laughs) And I'd say, I wish it had been your damn head. Now this is after having some rapport with an Al-Anon speaker. This is how sick I was. Six years later, I was on a Serenity retreat. And I asked the priest, I said, why have I never felt any shame or remorse about that night? And this priest knew me real well, and he says, honey, some of us are sicker than others. (laughs) And in your case, you were much more violently ill from the reaction to the disease than your husband was from the action of the disease in his life. Uh, He just drank. He was a very peaceful drunk. He would have just come in the door and passed out if I would have let him. But I was not able to let him. You see, I had been storing up all day what I was going to tell him, and by darn he was going to listen to me. And if he passed out, I would wake him up. I would pour ice water on him and say, you get up and listen to me. I poured a pitcher of ice water on him one night in order to read Father Fowl's Serenity and Beyond to him. Uh, we never did get to read that book that night, because we really had a go-to that night. That's the night he hit me with it, and that book's still bent in the middle where it hit me. Uh, but you see, it was important to me to get these things out. I wanted to talk, and he never would talk. And I would prove to him where he lied to me, and, you know, I'd prove it in black and white, and he'd look me straight in the eye and say, so what? And then I'd be frustrated again. You know, I had proven to him he lied, and it didn't make any difference. I couldn't get through to him. and. This frustration. You see, I knew this was a good man. I knew he was a good person. I, you know, he was, he was all the things that I had ever wanted in a husband, and yet I couldn't reach him. I, it was like there was a glass wall between us, and I couldn't talk to him. I couldn't reach him. I couldn't touch him. I couldn't get any reactions from him unless they were violent, and I was willing to settle for that. That's how much I wanted to get through to him. Uh, I kept going to meetings. They say, if you keep bringing the body back, eventually the mind comes too. And I think they use that phrase, we came, we came too, and then we come to believe. And this is how it had to happen for me. It was a slow walk for me. Uh, you see, when I went, they told me I couldn't even say I was married to an alcoholic. They said, you have to say you're married to a person who has a drinking problem, and that his drinking causes you problems. Well, it sure did. It caused him some problems too. But they did start giving me little hints of things to do, to releasing with love, they said. Well, I could release him, but with the love part, I couldn't handle. And uh, they kept saying, you know, let go, let God. And this one little old lady around the group there, uh, she wasn't an old lady then, she was a sweet young lady, but she had the softest, sweetest, most cultivated voice you'd ever want to hear. And she would sit next to me and pat me and say... Honey, let go and let God. And I'd think, Oh, God, I could kill her. And finally one night i said, Mary Claire, how do you let go and let God? And she just smiled sweetly. You know, they didn't react. They loved me when I was unlovable. They loved me until I could feel their love and return it. And she just smiled and said, Honey, you'll know when you do it. And I thought, that's no answer. And I was so frustrated when I left there. But, you know, I was mad enough to think, and this is what they did to me now and on, they hurt my feelings every time I went to one of those meetings. One night I was elaborating on what he had been doing to me. And this mean old lady uh, was sitting next to me. And she says, oh, honey, he's sick. And I said, yeah, sick in the head. And she said, so are you. Well, I gave that old lady a wide berth for a lot of nights. If she was on that side of the room, I was over here, and if she moved that way, I'd move that way. But that's the fastest old lady you've ever seen. Somehow or other, she'd pin me down, and when the chairman would hit the table with the gavel, she'd be right beside me, pull me down in the chair next to her, and hold my hand. God forbid. She was an unmarried old lady, and she would pat my knee and rub my hand, and I worried about that old lady for a long time. You know, she, you just don't do things like that. And I would sit on my hands to keep her from holding them. I did all kinds of things to get away from this old lady, but she was determined and fast. And you know, I, I realize now that we new ones in the program were so few that she really had to work hard to get a pigeon. And that's why she was after me. I just know that. And of course that lady's rude the day she was my sponsor because I've worn her out many, many times. But uh, when she said that, that hurt my feelings, and I went home that night, and boy, I was mad. But, you know, I had to admit that, that there was something wrong with me. You don't put salt in the refrigerator and bread in the oven if you're normal. Uh, there's got to be something wrong that I'm doing all these crazy things. And, you know, I did come to a place where I believed that the whole world would now step with me. That maybe I was the one who was having a problem reacting to other people. Even my neighbors. I kept my children in my yard. I allowed the neighbor children to come in and then felt put upon because I was tending everybody's kids in the neighborhood. But I wouldn't allow my children to go out because I didn't want to be indebted to the neighbor for watching my children. That's how independent and how self-righteous and haughty I was. I finally, I kept asking questions, you know, how do you use the serenity prayer? That's the dumbest prayer I've ever heard. And I really believed that. That prayer just did not make sense to me. Because how did you accept something? Until you tried to change it. And then they were saying, you know, you had to know the difference. Well, you know, if you didn't try to change it, how are you ever going to know the difference? This is my attitude. Until one day I heard this lady, she hit the podium and I come about that far off the seat. And while I was up there, she had my attention, I guess, because I must have been sitting on my brains. And she said, I am powerless over persons and places and things. The only thing I can change is my attitude towards what's happening to me right now. And I said, "Why didn't they tell me that in the beginning?" But you know, I know now that it's when the pupil's ready, God sends the teacher. And this is how I've learned things down through the years in this program. I came to Alon in February of 1960, and I was going I had been going for two years, and I hadn't gotten sober yet. I was working on it. And I chose his sponsor. I had his sponsor over to dinner. I had uh his uh, sponsor and my sponsor uh in the house many times trying to get him to get him sober. And uh, they they never knew their part either. They never reacted right. And uh, they just let him drink right in front of them. I wouldn't even tell him. They objected to it. And I objected to this. Uh I, would, I just had a terrible time with these people. They wouldn't do what I wanted them to do. But I was learning. They told me to release him with love, and to stop covering up for him. Well, now, we lived in a little small community right outside of Louisville. And if I didn't make those bad checks good, I wasn't going to be able to cash a check at the grocery store. So you know I have to make those checks good. I mean, doesn't that make sense to you? It did to me. And they said, no, you don't. You're taking his responsibility away from him. You're taking responsibility for his actions. And then they told me the one thing that helped. They said, do you know that every time you make a bad check good, you make him angrier with you because you're heaping more guilt on him. He he can't feel grateful to you for making that check good. The only thing he can feel is the guilt and the humiliation, and that leads him to anger and to lash out. And I understood that. And so I stopped making the checks good. Uh, I stopped lying to the bill collectors and I even started telling them where they could reach him if they wanted their money. And he really reacted badly to this. Now here I am using my Al Anon and he's not acting nice at all. Uh, he liked Al Anon when I first went because they told me to keep my big mouth shut. And uh, when he walk in the door and say hi, did you have a good day? And the poor man thought he was in the wrong house. But he liked it at first. But see, when I started releasing completely, uh, I can remember a golf ball calling one day, wanting some money. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't take care of the bills anymore, but you can reach Bob down at Wilford's Tavern. And I gave him the number. And uh, he came home from the tavern shortly thereafter. And we had a real good set to that day. Because, you see, I was learning to keep my mouth shut under certain conditions. But if he pushed the right button, he could get me going again and away I'd go. And I learned to keep it shut when he picked on me. And then I learned to keep it shut when he picked on the oldest daughter. Then I learned to keep it shut when he picked on the oldest boy. I learned to keep it shut when he picked on the dog. But damn, every time he kicked that cat, I'd go to pieces. <laughs> I never did learn to keep it shut when he kicked the cat. And I don't like cats. That's the thing I don't understand. (laughs) But this, but I was learning one day at a time. I actually learned to live my life. And they told me to go home and make my children glad that I was their mother. And, you know, this was a whole new area for me to work in. Because when I reached out to hug my oldest daughter, she flinched. She didn't know whether I was going to kiss her or slap her. And when I saw that reaction, I can't tell you the shame that came over me. And I started to realize that my husband hadn't really hurt these children at all. Now, I had told him hundreds of times how his drinking was hurting the children. But I was the one who was inflicting the damage on the kids, not my husband. Me with my vulgar talk, my accusations. And I told you I taught them to hate their father. And I didn't even know how, that I was doing it. I remember Cindy came in and asked for <clears throat> skates one day. All the kids in the neighborhood had skates. And I said, we can't buy skates. And she said, why not? And I said, we don't have any money. And she says, everybody has skates, Mom. And I said, well, if your daddy wasn't down at the bar drinking up all the money, we'd ha- you'd have skates. I said, because he doesn't love anybody but himself. And later, when I heard this child tell her second oldest sister, Daddy doesn't love us, I thought, where did she get that? I'd given it to her. I'd taught it to her. So I was the one who'd done the damage. And I was had my hands full trying to undo this damage and make my kids glad I was their mother. And I just let him drink. I just let him do what he had to do. Um... The story about the electric is the uh, the one that's the funniest in my life because this is when Alanon was really working for me. You see, uh, the elect- man that read the meter and I were on first-name basis because he'd come to read the meter and he'd come to the door and he'd say, Miss West, I'm going I turn the electric off? You didn't pay the bill. And I'd say, oh, I put the check in the mail yesterday. And he'd say, okay, and then he'd leave, and then I'd rush down to my mother's and get the money. Well, eventually got to the place where I didn't even bother to tell him. I'd put it in the mail yesterday. I'd say, don't turn it off. I'll go down and get the money from my mother. And uh, so this one day after Al-Anon was really working in my life, he came to the door, and this is in, uh, it was kind of chilly, and he says, I'm going to have to turn the electric off, hon. You better run on down to your mom's. And I said, no, no, you'll have to turn it off. And he says, no. Put the check in the mail tomorrow. And I said, no, you're going to have to turn it off. And he says, now, go on down to your mother's, and I'll read a few meters. I had to make that man turn my electric off. He wasn't going to do it. And I kept. finally, I had to tell him. I had to say, this is necessary for me to do so that my husband has to face up to his responsibilities. And he says, well, you don't know how hard this is for me to do to turn this electric off on you and these babies. He says, but if you say so. And, you know, when Bob came home that night, the kids and I were laying in blankets around the fireplace. And he flips the switch, you know, and it doesn't go on. And he says something about being too damn lazy to go down and fix the fuse box. And I said, uh, I didn't say anything to him. And he went downstairs and he came back up and he says, what's wrong? And I said, you didn't pay the bill. And, you know, he left. He just left. Didn't say another word. And when he came back, he laid the electric bill and the money down. And he says, you take care of that tomorrow? And I said, yes. And this was the beginning of Bob facing up to his responsibilities. This was when he could not blame me for why he drank. And, you know, they, like I said, I did all the right things for the wrong reasons. They told me to kill him with kindness, and I was willing to kill him any way I could. So if it was kind of, with work, I'd try it. And that's what I did. We came to a place where we lost that house, and I thought the world was coming to an end. Uh, I told the women in Al and I, I said, we're going to lose this house. And this one said, you, it may be necessary. You may have to lose everything. And I thought, I don't want to go down with him. You know, if he's got to go, that's fine, but I don't want to go with him. And uh, they said, but it may be necessary for him to reach his bottom. And so the night that we lost the house, I went to that meeting, and I went out there to do one thing to tell those people off and tell them what they could do with their al and I was through, because they hadn't got him sober, they hadn't done a thing for me, and here we'd lost everything. And I sat down in that meeting, and I waited till the meeting was over, and these two old ladies were on either side of me, and I said, well, I just came to tell you that this whole thing is a mess, that we just lost our home today. And the one leans over to look at the other one like I wasn't there and said, isn't he progressing nicely?
1: <laughs>
0: now I knew these Alanons were crazy, but I couldn't believe they were that sick. And then they added insult to injury by patting me on the shoulder and saying, oh honey, be grateful.
1: <laughs>
0: now that's sick. I said, grateful for what? And they said, every drink he takes from this minute on brings him closer to the last one. And I'm telling you, I got goosebumps. I really did. Because I knew they were telling me the truth. They, they I said they only told me one lie. And I feel better about it right now anyway. Uh, we had to move in with my mother. And that's another story in itself. I'm an only child. And uh, my mother did not want me to marry Bob because she knew he had a drinking problem before we married uh, she didn't like him, and you know what that is to an only child. I mean, she was drawing up, uh, you know, uh, barricades, and there was nothing for me to do but leap them and prove to her that I knew better than she did, that this, you know, that I, this was the right thing to do. And I had to eat all this humble pie and go to her and tell her that we needed help desperately. And so she bought a big old house on a big old hill out on Iroquois Parkway, and we all moved in together, the drunk and seven kids, and myself, pregnant with an eighth one. And um, we moved in that big old house, and now things really got going good. Because, you see, I've been using the program. I was releasing him, not with love. He called it rejection, but I was releasing him. And now my mother got into the act. You see, alcoholism is a family disease, and when you're involved with it, you all get sick. And my mother got sicker faster than I ever had. And so she started running around to the bars and pulling him out. And she started doing all the things I, so it got real easy to let go and let mother. (laughs) I just worked my program just as sweet as you can see. And, but I had, there was one problem. The children had three bosses. You see, we'd sit down at the table and the kids would say, do we have to eat these potatoes? And my mother would say, yes, you have to eat those damn potatoes. And Bob would push back and say, you don't have to eat those damn potatoes. And the battle was on. The kids would look to me, do we or don't we, Mom? And if I said you don't, then I caught a lecture for three hours from my mother because she paid for those damn potatoes. And if I said you do, then Bob would jump up and no wonder I drink and go out to get drunk, you know. So I was damned if I did and damned if I didn't. And so finally I went up to school to a PTA conference, and the teacher that was teaching my oldest daughter um, said, uh, you know, Mrs. Wessel, if I didn't know you so well, and of course she did, my God, I'm room mother, I'm PTA president, an altar society president, and anything else that they needed up there, that I washed the church linens and ironed them, I was everything. I was all things, to all people, because you must think well of me. That was real important. And she said, if I didn't know you so well, I'd think that Cindy was a product of an alcoholic home because she acts just like I did. And I said, your father was an alcoholic? And she said, oh, yes. And she says, you know, she says, I would sit in the classroom and I would hate my mother and my father. And I said, you hated your mother? Was she an alcoholic too? And she says, oh, no, I hated her for making me live in that mess. And it was like somebody had blown a breath of air through me. And I did the first thing that I'd ever done. Now I filed suit for divorce real often because I worked for this attorney, it didn't cost anything and I you know, I'd just go file when I went to scare him sober. Uh but this time when I went down to file suit for divorce, I meant to do it. I meant to remove him from our lives. Because if the online program was gonna work for me, it was gonna have to work without him there. Because I no longer felt that I was going to be the force for good to get him sober. And so when I filed suit for divorce that time, I meant it. And I believe that the alcoholic has a built-in radar. And they know when we're not bluffing. They know when they've right before the axe is going to fall. And when they serve Bob with the papers, he did the only thing he's ever done. When there's a crisis, he goes fishing to think about it. And he said he was going fishing. And he took off, and for three weeks he was gone. And the kids and I... Relaxed, And my mother got real busy. She took a restraining warrant out. She had all the locks changed on the doors. And she was, and every day she'd say, you're not taking him back. Now, you're crazy to begin with, and I know that, but you're not taking him back. I'm going to raise these kids with you, and we're going to be just fine without him. And she did this all day, every day, as long as those three weeks went on. Well, the time came when Bob came back, and his key didn't fit the lock. And uh, he left, and I thought, well, this this is the last I'll ever see him. In fact, he told me when he left, he said, I would rather be dead than face a life without drinking. So don't keep asking me to do that. And I said, I'm not. I'm just asking you to live that life someplace else. And so when he left, I thought I'd never see him again. I really believed that if I saw him again or heard from him again, it would be when they told me he died under some bridge. I believed that because I I just knew that he would hit the bottom. Uh, He came back that night, though. I was getting dressed to go to my regular Al-Anon meeting, and when he came back, he didn't like the way his keys still didn't fit the door, so he broke it down. And my mother called the police, and the... I heard the, I was letting all this go on. I was really using Al-Anon. I could just let the world go around me just if they wanted to twirl, they could twirl because I was really releasing everybody in my life. I didn't allow other people to control me and I didn't allow them to control my happiness. And I'm upstairs getting dressed until I heard the children screaming and I thought, what in the world? And I went out to the hallway, and Cindy was rushing all the little children up the steps. Our oldest daughter was just nine and a half, and she's rushing all these little babies up the steps, and she says, Daddy's got a gun, and says he's going to kill us. And I said, Oh, your father's not going to kill anybody. I said, Where is he? And they said, He's up in the attic. And I opened that attic door, and there he sat with a 12-gauge shotgun. And I said, What are you doing? And this man, who'd been gone for three weeks... Looked me straight in the eye, and he said, Honey, your mother's called the police on me, and she's going to put me out. And I can't live without you and the kids. And you know, I knew he meant that. Alanon had worked enough in my life where I knew he meant that. And I just closed the door, <laughs> and I went downstairs, and my mother was coming out of her room with her four ten shotgun. And I said, what are you going to do? And she says, I'm going upstairs and get rid of the problem. And she would have, too. And, you know, for just a minute, now I'm an only child and I love my mother, but for just a minute I thought if I let her go, maybe they'll kill each other and the kids and I can live in peace. I did try to stop her. I put my arm up at the stairway and I said, no, Mother, you're not going up there. This. The police came to the front door and they see these two women struggling over a gun. And then they're told there's a nut in the attic, and uh, they called out the riot squad. And there we were, sitting up on that hilltop, and we have a driveway on the left-hand side of the house and around the back, and a street in the front and on the right-hand side. And we were totally surrounded by police cars with their uh, floodlights up on the house, and all the policemen were behind these big old trees out in our yard with tear gas guns. And if you've never seen a tear gas gun, I'm telling you, they look like a cannon, they're that big. And... I walked to the door and looked out at this scene and those little red lights are going around and the radios are on full blast saying riot on Iroquois Parkway. And I thought, oh my God, what must the neighbors think? I really hadn't grown a whole lot in the program. I still lived my life at what they thought of me. I opened the door and leaned out and I said, is it okay if I call AA? And this one policeman stuck his head around the tree, and he says, Hell, lady, we don't care who you call. And I called AA that night. Bob's brother and a priest that Bob had played ball with, and two AA members came to our house that night. And, you know, to this day, I marvel at the courage that that had to have taken to come to a house where two people were armed, ready to kill, and they walked in. They just walked in. His brother went up and got him to give up the gun. The priest went out and got rid of the police, and the two AA members got my mother to give up her gun, and they put her to bed and gave her one of her sleeping pills. And then they took Bob out to get him some coffee. And I'll never forget, I'm sitting there with the phone still in my lap where I made the call. I hadn't moved. And he leans back in the door and he says, We're going out to get some coffee. Bye, honey. See you in a minute. And I thought, Oh, my God. And then they were gone, and I was totally alone, and I have never been that alone in my life. I was full of despair, because if there was a God, he didn't love me, or he wouldn't let these things happen. I never, I was, that we had no money, we had nothing, no insurance, nothing in this whole world. Not even the, the house we lived in. We were living on my mother's charity, and I was expecting an eighth child. And I was at the pit of despair, and I went up the steps and looked out the window, and I could remember that I heard this woman's voice, this old lady's voice, and she had said in one of the meetings, if you're not as close to God as you want to be, you're the one who's moved away, reach out, he's there, he's waiting for you. And I reached out physically in the darkness of that room, and I felt a presence And I felt a peace. And I know in that moment is when I took the first step of my Al-Anon program. You see, I had been using the slogans in little bits and pieces, but I had never admitted that I was powerless. And in that reaching out, I said the one true prayer I'd ever said in my life. I'm Catholic. I recite prayers. I can recite you any prayer you want to hear. But I said, please, God help me. And I laid down across the bed and went to sleep. When the alarm clock went off the next morning, I jumped out of that bed because I did not know where these seven children were, and our baby was just 18 months old. Uh, I didn't know where they were. I didn't know what had become of them. From the time I'd seen them and closed the door on Bob up in that attic, I did not know where they'd been. I went back to the bedrooms, their beds hadn't been slept in, and I was panicked. I saw Cindy's closet door was closed, and I rushed over there and jerked that door open, and it wouldn't open. It was locked. And I said, Cindy, and her little voice says, Mom, is everything all right? And, you know, she had herded those babies into that closet with blankets and pillows, and they had spent the night in total terror of what was going to happen out there with their grandmother and their dad with guns. Because Bob has been sober and I've been active in this program, our children never had another night like that. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for this program. And that's why this day, Bob and I are more active today in Al-Anon and AA than we were then. Because then we had a drinking problem. Today we have living problems. They came out, uh, Bob came home from the hospital. and. I thought he was gone. I really did, because I told the psychiatrist that I was getting a divorce, and he said, Good. He said, I've talked to the man, and there's not an honest bone in his body. He'll die. hopeless drunk. And thank God the AAs didn't think that way. They went up to that hospital by the droves, and they talked to him, and they begged him to come back to AA. And when he got out of the hospital, our, I looked up. It was our second oldest daughter's birthday. And I looked up at the kitchen door while I was fixing supper, and there he stood. And my heart just stopped because I thought my godmother will be home in 30 minutes, and it'll all start over again. It'll be the same thing we had the other night. And I just went to the door, and I didn't even unlock it. I said, go away. And he said, please let me in. I've been talking to your mother. Well, my husband and my mother didn't talk. They screamed and they fought, but they didn't talk. And he got my attention. And I said, You've been talking to Mother? And he said, yes. And she said, if it's okay with you, then it's okay that I come home for Pam's birthday. And I opened the door, and Pam heard him, and Pam's her daddy's girl. And they grabbed him and hugged him and kissed him, and then they went on in the other room. And we had supper. And I was supposed to go to a meeting that night, to the Ashland group, and I was supposed to talk. And I thought, I can't go. I gotta stay here and keep these two apart, you know. I don't, I can't go. But they told me in Al-Anon that I couldn't tell you no. That if you asked me to do something, I had to do it. And, uh, if it was at all possible. And so I just got dressed and I told them goodbye and I left them there in that house together. And I didn't know whether the house or they would be there when I got back. I swear I did not know. I went to that meeting, and I don't know what I did at that meeting. But when I came home, they were still sitting at the kitchen table, drinking coffee and talking. And I sat down. I got a cup of coffee. And Mother says, he wants to stay. And uh, I just looked at her, and I knew what her answer was. And I looked at him, and he says, Juanita, I can't promise you anything. I can only tell you that I don't want to go back to the hell we've been living in. And I'm willing to give AA an honest try. And there was never a question for me. Even though my mother ran it on for another hour about if he took one drink, the whole kit and caboodle of us would hit the street. She wasn't going to do anything for us. I had this faith in what he had said. You see, he would promised me the sun, moon, and stars many times. If you just call my boss, I'll never drink again. But this time he was talking the talk I needed to hear. He was speaking the language of the heart. And that was November the 11th, I think, then, because it was a few days after the last drink. And uh, I haven't found it necessary to curse him, to beat him, to hit him with a poker, or to rip shirts off of him in the last 23 years. (laughs) Uh, It hasn't all been good. You see, we got real active in Al-Anon. It was a wonderful program, and we were just so enthusiastic, and our children were in Alateen, and we were the best Darn Day A&L and Alateen family you ever saw at a meeting. Uh, we could fight all the way to that meeting and get out of the car and turn on, and we go in and help all these poor souls, and then we go back and get in that car, and as soon as that car door shut, we'd pick that coral right up where we'd left off, and we'd be at it again. And you see, I thought... If he was working his program, he wouldn't be the way he was. And he would say the same thing to me. If you were working your Al-Anon program, you wouldn't act like this. We were so busy taking each other's inventory that we forgot to grow in the program ourselves. And so, as Father Noel said last night, the program diminished and the resentment and anger and pain grew. And we came closer to divorce in the program than we had ever been before, because, you see, I still wanted him to fit my image of what a good husband and a good AA and a good community member was, and he just didn't do it. He didn't have, he he had square corners where the round hole was, and I couldn't fit him in, and I kept whittling away. I kept trying to change him, knowing I couldn't. I came to a place where I had—I uh, got real determined to go to work and uh, sober and, and straighten everything out. You know, I was going to get a job and get this extra money that we kept fighting over. And so I did. I got a job, and I happened to go to work for a big factory in their personnel office. And the first thing they did was they came in and they said, "Do you know we're going to open an alcoholic control program, Juanita, and we want you to do the paperwork." And I said, uh, "I don't. Would rather not." And my boss looked at me and he said, "I don't remember asking you." And when they're paying you a salary, you can't fight back like I did with Bob, so I had to do it. And in working in this alcoholic control program, he was going to fire a man that I really knew was doing the best job that he could possibly do in the program. He just wasn't doing what my boss thought he ought to do. And I can remember going in that day at my boss's office when he had told me to fire him. And I said, you can't fire this man because you're demanding that he fits your image of an employee. And this man is doing the best job he can right now to stay sober and do the right things. And just like that, it hit me. And I went home, and I rushed into the house, and you can tell from the way I talk that when one word will do, I use ten. And I started bubbling off to Bob about that I had come to this understanding, that he was doing the best job he could to stay sober, and I was grateful for it. And that I loved him, and I didn't want this pain that was in our lives. And I said, do you understand what I'm saying? And he said, not really, but I love the way you're saying it. (laughs) And we started our program together, and our program started to grow, and the pain stopped. I can't tell you how many conventions that I've been to and sat out there and screamed inside myself, please God let this speaker say something to ease the pain. And he was sober. And you see, if you keep coming back and you keep working at the program and you try to get honest with yourself and you try to be open to putting the focus on yourself, taking it off the alcoholic, putting it on yourself, the pain will grow less. Nobody can wave a magic wand and remove it. But it does diminish as your program grows. I don't know when the pain left. I really don't. I don't care. I'm glad it's gone because today I'm comfortable. You see, I used to pose for holy cards when he drank. Uh, you know, I'd look pitiful and put upon and so sweet. And today when I look in that mirror, I can look me straight in the eye and I'm comfortable. I'm really comfortable with me because I like me today. Now, I'm not as as good as I want to be, and I probably never will be. But I'm comfortable because I know that even when I do something wrong, I'm aware of it today. And I'm able to work on it and change it. Every morning offers me a new page in my life, and I'm able to work on it. My resentments... Those were the hardest things to get over. I really believed that when he got sober, he didn't owe me anything but one day's sobriety. I even said that many, many times. But damn him, he better not be tight with that money. (laughs) And he better be generous with the kids. And he better not do something. You know, I had all these little codicils added on to these statements. And when I came to a place where I learned to deal with my resentments, uh, I was a long time in the program. I still have trouble with anger. Uh, when our oldest daughter had a baby, uh, she made her pregnancy so good for all of us. We were all so excited and every day we would feel her tummy and feel the baby, you know, and we were all so excited we named it and, uh, we, you know, we were just so into this. And when she started into labor, the entire family, and when I say entire family, I'm talking in-laws and outlaws and boyfriends and everybody went to the hospital to have a baby. Everybody but mom. He wouldn't go. And I didn't understand. And we're down there just, we're just so excited. And they even let us back in the labor room. And we were holding her hand and helping her <laughs> and blow, you know, and doing all those wonderful things. And Bob wouldn't come. And we even called him and asked him to come. It was getting close, and he still didn't come. And I started resenting it. And I spilled up an anger towards him that night that I can't explain to anybody. But I hated the same way I had hated before. I resented with the same bitter, galling taste in my mouth that I had resented before. Because why wouldn't he share this beautiful moment with us? When that baby girl was born and we went home, I wouldn't tell him what it was. I wouldn't share it with him. The kids did, but I wasn't going to. And I went to the meeting the next night. And I told my home group. I said, I don't like him. I don't like what he did to me last night. And one of the gals there asked me if I had examined my conscience. And you know, when I went home and talked to Bob, the thing I got out of it was that, you know, he had never been there for me. And so it, he didn't feel comfortable being there for her. And I was able to understand and it wiped the anger away. And I work real hard on this anger. And that's why I say my home group knows the worst of me and they love me anyway. And for that, I'm so grateful. Uh, I wish I could tell you more of the things, but sponsorship is so important. This same beautiful old lady, still mean as a snake, but she's beautiful, It's over 80 years old, and she still goes to meetings, and the, she can't get out as much as she does, so she has them in her home. She has people in her home on Tuesdays and Wednesday nights and talks to them about the steps and the program. And bless her heart, she uses me as the horrible example. Uh You know, most Al-Anons do. A lot of you Al-Anons are going over there and buy this tape and take it home to your husbands and say, Buddy, be grateful. You could have been married to this. (laughs) And I think that's what Hallie does. But that's okay. I serve my purpose, and that's what God put me here, to share my experiences and my strength and my hope. The things I tell you are how Al-Anon works in my life. Uh, it's brought this family together. We are truly an AA and al and Alatine family. Uh, our children are so into the program, they went out and married children who had drunks for mothers and fathers. And they got in the program, too. And so it's been a beautiful, <laughs> growing program. Uh, we're just so grateful to, to be here. Uh, you people are wonderful. We, we love this area. This is tremendous. Uh, when I first came down back in February to St. Simons, I kept referring to it as Florida because we landed in Jacksonville. And uh, I don't make that mistake today. I know where I am. I'm on these beautiful golden isles in Georgia and I love it. Uh, I want to thank the committee for asking me to come. Uh, I've I've been the, the benefit, of, received all the benefits from this because I've gotten a chance to sit with you and talk with you and listen to you and I love you. And if anybody hasn't told you today they love you, let me be the first. Uh, when my husband drank, I thought it was the worst thing in the world that could happen. I know today that alcoholism isn't the worst thing. Uh, I know that when they told me to accept, you see, I thought in order to accept it, I had to like it. And they told me now and I know, no. no. You don't have to like it to accept it, but in the acceptance of it, you gain freedom that no longer can control you. My happiness has to come from within, and it does because I have reached a good place between me and my God, and I choose to call him God. Uh, my husband's mother, uh, dad, and my mother and dad died of cancer, and you know that's a terminal disease. That's that's a, a really incurable disease. And if my husband had to have an incurable disease, I'm so grateful it's alcoholism because the treatment is meetings and being with people like you. There is no reason in this world why two kids raised on farms and married with as many children as we have would be privileged to be standing in this place at this time. We would never have had the money to afford trips like this. But because of this program and the things it has given us, We're here. We're exactly where God meant us to be. And when I started this talk, I always say a little prayer, and I have never really shared that at an open level, but I've always said that prayer, God, fill my mouth with real good stuff and nudge me when I've said enough, thank you.